this is how conversations often go in my household, particularly in the car. Daddy, what's that? Oh, it's a cement mixing truck. Why is it? Well, people mix cement in it to build buildings. Why do they? Well, they build buildings so we can shop and buy things. Why do we buy things? Well, we buy things so we can have food to eat. Why do we have food to eat? Well, because we get hungry. Why do we hungry? Daddy, 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 daddy. Yes, what? Why do we hungry? So we can have energy. Daddy, why do we energy? Because that's how God made us. Daddy, why did God make us? I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. When does that stop? Or as my son would say, why does that stop? When did it happen that you and I stopped asking those kind of questions about the world and began just to accept it as we saw it? When did it happen that you and I stopped seeing the world and believing it could be different to believing that it was just the way it always was going to be? When did it happen that you and I began to see the world and when someone would give us an excuse, they would say, that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it is. When did it happen that you and I began to accept the status quo, the conventional wisdom, just the way things are, and leave that as a satisfactory answer? We're beginning this morning part two of a sermon series we began way back in May with some uh, time in between. It's called Family Tree. And we're looking at what God did through one particular family, and the reason it's important is not just because it happened then, but because it happens today. Human nature doesn't change, and neither does God. God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what God did then is what God is doing now. We're going to look particularly at the life of one man named Jacob. Now, you may not know this about the scripture, but with maybe one exception, we do not turn to the Bible for examples of moral, morality or the way to live. In general, the people in scripture are complicated. They're filled with blessings and burdens. They, they, they don't always do what they're supposed to do. They don't always keep their promises. In other words, the people in Scripture turn out to be a lot like you and me. And of all the people in Scripture, one of the most complicated and therefore I think the most interesting is Jacob, grandson of the patriarch Abraham. And as we'll see through the next several weeks, Jacob is not someone we look to as a moral example, but he is somebody we look to to see what happens when God begins to work in an individual's life. And it turns out that when God begins to work in an individual's life and begins to work in Jacob's life, the status quo is overturned. The way it goes is no longer a good enough answer. And the conventional wisdom is rejected. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, this morning, take my words and speak through them. And then take our thoughts and think through them. And then as a result, Lord, take our hearts and light them up with love for you and for your world. This is what we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a man named Abraham many, many, many centuries ago. And he has a wife named Sarah. And one of the great challenges of Abraham's life is the fact that Abraham and Sarah cannot have a child, which is difficult in any case, and maybe you're here today and struggling with that burden. But it's particularly made difficult when God has promised children to Abraham and it doesn't seem to happen. 
It's the great challenge and trial of Abraham and Sarah's life together. But ultimately, God is faithful, as the Lord is always faithful. And they have a son, and his name is Isaac. Now, Isaac is the child of the promise. You'd think his life is without problems. You'd think his life would be abundantly blessed in every way. But it turns out, you cannot infer from your circumstances whether God is with you or not. Because Isaac begins to have some troubles in his life. Now, Abraham and Sarah want to set up Isaac for the perfect future, and so they pick out a woman for him from their own clan. Her name is Rebekah. So you have the child of promise, Isaac, with the special woman, Rebekah. And yet even they have trouble having a child. And this is what the scripture says. This is Genesis chapter 25. Verses 19 and following. These are the descendants of of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. When her time, came to, give birth was, when her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out all red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau, which means the hairy one. It's a beautiful name. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, and so he was named Jacob, which means the one who grasps. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. May God add his richest blessing on the reading and hearing of the word today. Amen. So you have Abraham married to Sarah. Their son Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have trouble conceiving. In fact, it takes 20 years before Rebekah is able to be pregnant. Are you in the midst of waiting for something hard this morning? I don't believe God has given up on you yet. I think God is faithful. Now, ultimately, she does conceive, and the pain is so intense, she goes to the Lord and says, why is it like this? In fact, the scripture says it's like this. The children struggled together within her. But of course, Genesis was written in the ancient language of Hebrew, and so this is just a translation, and it's sort of a weak, namby-pamby translation. The word struggle there is a very violent word. It usually has to do with murder and war and killing elsewhere in the scriptures. In fact, in Judges chapter 9, it says this, But a certain woman threw an upper millstone of Abimelech's on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. That's the same word that's used. So you should read your Bible. There's all kinds of interesting stuff in there. It's a violent word. She's overcome with pain as the children are struggling within her, and she goes to inquire of God why. Why is it like this? After I've waited for 20 years and you finally answered my prayer, why did you answer it like this? And this is what God says. And the message of God to her is the sort of message that would make the ancient hearers of this story have their hair stand up. God says in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23 Two nations are in your womb, you have twins, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the elder shall serve the younger. 
The elder shall serve the younger, is what the oracle from God says to Rebekah. Now, you and I are 21st century American folks, and we miss some of the difficulties of the passage. Now, there is one thing that's been true for most of human history, and even has been true up until just the very recent times in most parts of the world, and it's this. The most important person in the family after the father is the eldest son. It's called the law of primogenitor. Who the oldest son is is the one who inherits the property, who begins to take control of the family himself. We saw an example of that this week. The little baby born to Kate Middleton and Prince William will be the heir to the throne because he's the eldest son, not any future children they may have. This is how the world works. This is how the world is organized. I've been trying to think of an analogy of something that we take that much for granted. Maybe something like the freedom of speech or the freedom to think what you want to think. We think that is just fundamental to what it means to be in society. And in the same way, the law of primogeniture worked like that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the younger sons and any other siblings served the eldest son. But God says to Rebecca, it won't be like that in your family. In fact, the elder shall serve the younger. It takes the status quo, the conventional wisdom, and totally upends it. See, it turns out when God begins to work in somebody's life and begins to work in the world, the way things go begins to be changed. Just the way it is becomes no longer the way it's going to be. The status quo is overturned. Which has got me thinking about this question. You have these two boys born, Esau and Jacob, twins, children and grandchildren of these incredible people that God was working through. But God says it's no longer going to be the way it's been. So the question I want to ask you today is this. What are you accepting that you should be rejecting? What are you accepting that you should be rejecting? What are you just buying into? What are you just, just accepting? Is That's just the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. When did you and I stop asking the questions a little child always wants to ask, which is why? Why does it have to be like this? When did you and I start saying that's just the way it goes? So I want to be real practical. I want to use this question in some different areas of our lives to poke us a little bit and push us. Because I believe this is a powerful, very unsettling question. So for example, in your personal life, what are you accepting that you should be rejecting? Here's what I mean. I've been wearing this stupid boot for weeks. I'm almost now used to it. The limp is just what I am. In fact, I had a wedding the other night and somebody told me it looked really good. I'm thinking about buying another one and just having a matching set. The most expensive shoe I'll ever buy. And I'm, I've almost forgotten what it's like not to have to limp around and hobble around. And I meet people like that all the time. I don't mean literally. But I mean people who have forgotten what it's like to be totally well, to be healed. Begin to just accept a limp in their lives. See, on your wedding day, you really believed in those vows you said, and you really believed that God was going to particularly work in your marriage. But now so many years have passed, and you just, you're just accepting it. You just say, that's the way it goes. Nobody's marriage ends up working out for good. It just becomes what it's like. What are you accepting in your personal life that you ought to be rejecting? Are you just buying into the idea that everybody's marriage is that hard? Marriage is always difficult, but God doesn't intend for it to be difficult to, forever. 
I believe God can actually work in your marriage. I believe God can actually take people who have been married for 20 years, 30 years, 15, 10, and give them to a deeper place of intimacy and friendship than they had when they were dating. I really believe that. But how come so many of us, though, just begin accepting it just the way it is rather than rejecting that outright? If it's hard right now, then begin to work on it. We're not going to accept it as it is. Or what about morally? I saw this picture one time, it was a news story, about this guy in Indonesia they called the tree man. Anybody ever seen this? I debated showing a picture of him, but wiser and cooler heads prevailed. I'm not going to do it this morning. He's so infected with the virus that causes warts that his body looks like bark and, and tree stumps. And I think sometimes I wonder what, if we could see with spiritual discernment what our characters would look like to God. Would we look like that? Having all these things growing and feeding on us? I heard a preacher say this week he was talking about lust. He said, if you're a man, particularly, lust is just part of what it means to be alive. The thoughts and temptations come to you. But if somebody comes to your house and starts knocking on the door, saying, let me in, and you think, I don't know if I should let that person in or not, you don't go ahead and open the door and say, come on in, sit down, let me decide if I'm going to let you in. You decide before you open the door. And what is not inevitable in the lives of men is that we have to open the door and entertain those thoughts at our leisure. And I wonder what many of our characters would be like if other people were able to see the way we think about and look at women. Would it look like that man infected with the virus just calling all over us and feeding on our souls? Or what about those of us who struggle, which I do, with materialism, buying the best and the newest and the brightest? What is that doing to our souls? At some point in your life, you thought, I don't want to live a life just like that. It's not about just what I can buy and sell, about getting and spending. It's about something else, but yet so many of us gradually drift into that way. What are we accepting that we ought to be rejecting? That is not what ultimately life is about. Or maybe you've just, you've just been in debt for so long, you think there is no way out. That's just the way it's going to be. What are you accepting? And you need to be rejecting that utterly. Or maybe you're here today and, and you, you're not a believer, you're struggling, you're a skeptic, you're, you're, you're curious, maybe you're raised in the church, you've walked away from it. There's lots of interesting people out there with lots of interesting arguments. But I find it very interesting that so many of us who struggle with the claims of the faith buy wholesale the claims of people who are trying to tear down the faith. What kind of lies are you accepting, or at least half-truths are you accepting when you ought to be rejecting them? Maybe it's time to start doubting your doubts and investigating. Maybe, in fact, the claims of the church are true. In our personal lives, if when God begins to work, the status quo is upended, what are we currently accepting that God is asking us to reject? A way of seeing the world, a way of thinking about people, a way of spending our money. That's what we're thinking about. But it's larger than that. I believe this is a question that we can use in terms of our life calling. Here's what I mean. One of the things that drives me in my ministry is the fact that this television show still appears in prime time. <laughs> if there are people still out there watching The Bachelor, there's people that I need to be preaching to, it seems like. It's, I'm just joking. It's open season all year round around here on The Bachelor. 
But you know what actually really drives my ministry? This is serious. The fact that there are lonely people in East Dallas. It strikes me that at the very least, one of the things the church ought to be about is reaching out to the lonely and letting them know that there's community here. And I meet people all the time who are so desperately lonely. Maybe that's your story today. Just so lonely. And as long as there's lonely people in our neighborhood, we know at least the church has work to do to pull people into community. Let them know that God cares and therefore the church cares. The reason I bring that up is because perhaps one of the ways to know your life's calling is to think about what are the things that you don't want to accept anymore to be true about the world. Now, it could be really big and, and maybe we'd say obvious. You have a deep, godly hatred toward the idea of homelessness, and you want to spend your life and your calling working to end homelessness wherever you can. Wherever you can. Or maybe it's something else. See, one of the mistakes we often make is thinking about religious stuff and and just secular stuff. But I don't believe there's that line anymore. In fact, I was talking to a guy this week in our church. He's in the financial services services industry. He said, honestly, I kind of see my job like a ministry because there are a few bad apples in my profession. And when people come to me, I want to treat them right and use my skills and training and all my wisdom to do for their resources what I wish somebody would do for me. I want to treat them like that. You, you can use this question as a way of pushing you into your life's calling. You can be in the financial services industry and say, I'm not going to allow that to happen anymore. I reject that utterly. Or <clears throat> This weekend, my wife and I went to a local appliance store, and the customer service was terrible, and the employees didn't really treat us very well and didn't seem very interested in making a sale. You may be in some kind of business, and you say, you know what drives me? I reject the idea utterly that customers should be treated like that. In my line of work, in my business, we're going to always put the customer first. We're going to set the whole thing up around serving the customer's needs. That's what drives you. Maybe you're a teacher, and you think the fact that there are children at home without parents who love them is what's going to drive me in my profession. That's what's going to fuel me. It's not just about the test scores and all that. I'm going to make sure that there are no children that come through my life from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, who don't feel loved by me. I don't know what it is, but I bet God has a calling planned out for you, and one way to know about it is to use this question. In your life's calling, what what have you been accepting for too long which God is now calling you to reject? It's worth thinking about. But I believe it's even bigger than that. We live in a broken world. And I just wonder, in this world, what are God's people, what have God's people been accepting for too long when God is asking us to reject it outright? On April 24th, in a suburb outside of the capital of Bangladesh, there was a big garment factory that collapsed. This is a picture of the rubble. You probably remember hearing the story. It was a pretty big deal at the time. About a 1,000 people died in the collapse, and many, many, many more maimed and wounded for life because of the collapse. And it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't neat. Now, I'm not maybe quite as naive as I look. I wasn't born yesterday. I understand how the world works. I understand about global markets and supply and demand. I understand that the way capitalism works is that each of us has to try to get a small profit. Otherwise, what's the point? And self-interest drives each of us. 
I understand that. But I also understand that if the price I have to pay to get a low price when I go to the big box retailer to buy some shirt is that agreement and agreement has changed hand after hand after hand to get to some sort of sweatshop in which young women and girls are employed outside of Bangladesh on which the day before the collapse they find cracks in the building and they don't want to go in but the overseers say you must go in, we have to make a profit. People who are paid cents on the dollar. I understand that if that's the cost of that, I reject that utterly. I think the people of God should be called to reject things like this. This is one young woman, her name is Rebecca. This is a quote from a news story I read. The petite 22-year-old, the petite 22-year-old, her raven hair plaited in a thick braid, is splayed across a hospital bed in a ward lined with rows of victims. Mosquito netting covers her amputated leg, a stump bandage just below her hip is all that remains. Cockroaches swarm the railing of her metal bed. Just one more indignity in the calamity that has claimed five members of her family. In this broken world, what are the things that God is calling his people to reject outright rather than just accepting the way it goes? I understand, as Jesus said, the poor are always with us, and I understand that global finance is complicated. I don't have an answer to it, but perhaps somebody in this room is being called by God to address the inequities in the garment industry. And I guarantee you this, somewhere on this earth this morning, there was somebody, old or young, male or female, rich or poor, and perhaps somebody's who are being given a burden by God for this issue. And they're going to say, we are no longer going to accept that as acceptable. We reject that utterly. What are the things in our neighborhoods that we're just accepting which God is saying, you need to reject that utterly, outright? This summer, we've been hosting something called Project Transformation. One of the points of it is to help children, particularly those who are struggling with reading, get a leg up over the summer. Because for us, we've said it is unacceptable to us that there are children in 21st century Dallas, Texas who graduate from high school with nothing the world values. And if God allows it, we're going to make a difference in that area. What about you? What, what are the brokenness of our world that God is calling you to reject it? outright, no longer to accept. These are big, complicated issues, and I don't have the answers to all these things, but what I am saying is that we better begin to ask the question. See, it turns out when God shows up, the status quo and the conventional wisdom is overturned, which in fact is the whole story of the scripture. From the very beginning, the creation has rejected the creator. That's the sad story. It begins with Adam and Eve and the first murder of Cain against his brother Abel, and it continues down to the present, down to young women with amputated legs and cockroaches calling all over them in some hospital ward in Bangladesh. And it would make sense, and it would seem to be the way it goes and the conventional wisdom for God to say that I reject my world utterly. In fact, it's the opposite. The gospel is that God never rejects the world. In fact, God loves the world so that he gave his son who himself, in the bitter irony, was rejected, despised, humiliated, and ultimately crucified. But the love of God is such that even death is not allowed to separate God from his creation. And on the third day, he was raised again. So that the church could begin to live out a new way, rejecting the status quo. It's no longer going to be like that. So as a church, 
and because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord, what is it that we need to be rejecting instead of just accepting here in our community? Jesus says to his disciples, he says, among the Gentiles, the people who aren't Jewish, among the Gentiles, the rulers of them lorded over them, but not so with you. In fact, whoever wants to be my servant needs to be servant of all. In God's economy, often the last are first. That strikes me as a way of changing the way you and I interact with the world. When we visit people and see them with nothing the world values, we'll reach out with them with the hand of fellowship and say, you matter to us because you matter to God. I want us to be the church that finds those who are outside, on the margins, the outcasts, the lonely, even if you can't tell by looking at them, and welcomes them in. Because we reject the idea that any people don't matter to God. If after all, he loved the world to the extent that he died for it, it means that the conventional wisdom is totally overturned. And there's a new way. So the question for you and I is, because of what the Lord has done for us, how are we going to be changed? How are we going to see the world in a new way and no longer just accept the lies, the half-truths, truths, the status quo, and extend be, instead begin to live into the new reality that Christ came to bring. May God give us the courage to ask the question and the grace to follow through. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.